Well, let me just review a little bit in terms of a very big picture. We spent this entire uh, Bible study at the beginning of the year with, um, well, kind of the end of the judges. You know, Samuel was a judge. And uh, then we've kind of crept through the life of Saul, David, Solomon. Okay, and things maybe get a little fuzzy here because we have all these kings and it's hard to remember uh, exactly the, the flow of information. But this is kind of where we're going to spend the next several months, a roughly 200-year period of time from 931 B.C. to 722 B.C. And what happened here is uh, we have the Assyrian captivity. So I notice here we have the splitting of the kingdoms. Um, I talked about this uh, when we went over the life of Solomon. And remember, he taxed the people. He was mean in the end of his rule. And so his son, Rehoboam, the member of the people, came to him and said, are you going to treat us like Solomon did? Are you going to tax us like Solomon did? And he talked to his young advisors who foolishly uh, told him to advise the people, I'll make it even worse. And so when he told them that, the kingdom split. And we have the ten northern kingdoms here and the two southern kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin. And what happened here in about 200 years later is that the ten northern kingdoms went off to Assyrian captivity. Okay, dissolved into Assyrian culture, lost forever. Okay, so uh, after this then we have Judah. Notice here I put little uh, asterisks by kings who did some good things. We have a few here on the side of Judah and uh, but not a single one of the kings of Israel um, were devoted to God. Uh, Maybe another comment here on the prophets. I kind of tried to line up the prophets by who went to which nation. I find it kind of interesting here. We have Israel, a very rebellious kingdom. Who's God going to send a prophet to you? Well, you'd think it would be to the people that are loyal to him. But notice, Elijah goes to Israel. Uh, Elisha came with a message to Israel. Uh, Jonah had a message to both Israel and Judah. But, of course, what was so revolting about Jonah's message is, who else did he give a message to? It was to the Ninevites, the capital of Assyria, the enemy, the, the nation that would take the uh, Israelites into captivity. That was very offensive to Jonah. Amos and Hosea were prophets to Israel. And then we have finally Micah and Isaiah who had a message um, to both nations. Okay, so we're going to, uh, at this point, we're going to stop going through the Bible in a, in a uh, kind of book-by-book orderly fashion, but we're going to go chronologically. Okay, so we're going to go through these prophets, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah in that order. And along with it, we'll tie in the story, which is found in Kings and Chronicles. Okay, so what happened after this? I'm not sure where we'll end up here at the uh, end of the year, but after 722 B.C., we have just Judah left, Manasseh, all the way down here to Zedekiah, and then in 586, uh, it was the last of the three Babylonian invasions. And then, of course... Uh, Judah and Benjamin taken off into captivity. And I think maybe a fair question to ask is, I mean, this is pretty disastrous. It seemed like nothing worked. God lost Israel, then he lost Judah into captivity. And even, you know, when they came back and they rebuilt the temple and there was a uh, a dedication in a new direction to obey, and Nehemiah came along and threatened people and pulled their beards out if they didn't keep the Sabbath and do other things, And, of course, eventually that led to uh, the people that greeted Jesus, who were very uh, strict, commandment-keeping people who didn't appreciate Jesus at all. So I think a question to ask is, why did God 
I mean, did he have any idea that this is how it would end up? Uh, why bear so long with people? I mean, what, uh, what was God trying to accomplish? Did God accomplish anything during this almost a thousand year period of time? What was his purpose? Well, we can't answer that today, but that's something we'll, we'll try to answer here as we go through. Okay, here's kind of a, a take-home point I hope to make from this Bible study on um, Elijah. This is a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis, who said, My idea of God is not a divine idea. What does that mean? It has to be shattered time after time. He shatters it himself. Could we not almost say that his shattering is one of the marks of his presence? The incarnation is the supreme example. It leaves all previous ideas of the Messiah in ruins. Okay, and perhaps one point we could make about this thousand-year period of time is God, I think we will see, is shattering one misconception after another. Okay, it is a kind of a remarkable process of revelation during this time. And I hope to make one point about a unique revelation to Elijah here in this Bible study. Okay, we're leaving out a couple of interesting stories here um, leading up to uh, Elijah. And I think we might come back to, to one of those stories. But there's so much here to say about Elijah and Mount Carmel that we're going to spend the whole time just on this one story today. Okay, so I want to just read it through. Okay, and uh, what I really want to ask is, after Elijah called down fire from heaven, he ran off to the mountain, and God was not in the wind, he was not in the earthquake, he was not in the fire, and then comes a still, small voice. What does that mean? So here's a story. A prophet named Elijah from Tish in Gilead said to King Ahab, in the name of the Lord, the living God of Israel, whom I serve, I tell you that there will be no dew or rain for the next two or three years until I say so. And then the Lord said to Elijah, leave this place and go east and hide yourself near Sherith Brook, east of the Jordan. The brook will supply you with water to drink, and I have commanded ravens to bring you food there. And an insignificant point here, but in Hebrew, of course, which is uh, only in uh, consonants, uh, the same word for ravens is uh, uh, Arabs. So some have argued maybe it was the Arabs that fed Elijah um, here by the brook. Doesn't matter, but something, someone, came and uh, supplied Elijah with food. So after some time in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab, and I will send rain. So Elijah started out. The famine in Samaria was at its worst, and two or three years with no rain, not even any dew, this was very, very severe. So Ahab called in Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devout worshiper of the Lord, and when Jezebel was killing the Lord's prophets, Obadiah took a hundred of them, hid them in caves, and two groups of fifty, and provided them with food and water. After some time in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, Go and present yourself to King Ahab, and I will send rain. So Elijah started out. Uh, Ahab said to Obadiah, Let us go and look at every spring and every stream bed in the land and see if we can find enough grass to keep the horses and mules alive. Maybe we won't have to kill any of our animals. They agreed on which part of the land each one would explore and set off in different directions. As Obadiah was on his way, he suddenly met Elijah. He recognized him, bowed low before him, and asked, Is it really you, sir? Yes, I'm Elijah, he answered. Go and tell your master, the king, that I am here. And Obadiah answered, What have I done that you want to put me in danger of being killed by King Ahab? By the living Lord your God, I swear that the king has made a search for you in every country in the world. 
Whenever the ruler of a country reported that you were not in his country, Ahab would require that ruler to swear that you could not be found. And now you want me to go and tell him that you are here? What if the Spirit of the Lord carries you off to some unknown place as soon as I leave? Then when I tell Ahab that you are here and he can't find you, he will put me to death. Remember that I have been a devout worshiper of the Lord ever since I was a boy. Haven't you heard that when Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord, I hid a hundred of them in caves and two in groups of 50 and supplied them with food and water? So how can you order me to go and tell the king that you are here? He will kill me. Elijah answered, by the living Lord Almighty whom I serve, I promise that I will present myself to the king today. So Obadiah went to King Ahab and told him, and Ahab set off to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he said, so there you are, the worst troublemaker in Israel. I'm not the troublemaker, Elijah answered. You are, you and your father. You are disobeying the Lord's commands and worshiping the idols of Baal. Now order all the people of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. Bring along the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of the goddess Asherah, who are supported by Queen Jezebel. And so Ahab summoned all the Israelites and the prophets of Baal to meet at Mount Carmel. And you know the story, but I think some of the details here are helpful. So Elijah went up to the people and said, how much longer will it take you to make up your minds? If the Lord is God, worship him. But if Baal is God, worship him. But the people didn't say a word. And then Elijah said, I am the only prophet of the Lord still left, but there are 450 prophets of Baal. Now bring two bulls, let the prophets of Baal take one, kill it, cut it in pieces, and put it on the wood, but don't light the fire. I will do the same with the other bull. Then let the prophets of Baal pray to their God, and I will pray to the Lord, and the one who answers by sending fire, he is God. And the people shouted their approval. <clears throat> then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, since there are so many of you, you take a bull and prepare it first. Pray to your God, but don't set fire to the wood. They took the bowl that was brought to them, prepared it, and prayed to Baal until noon. They shouted, Answer us, Baal, and kept dancing around the altar they had built. But no answer came. At noon, Elijah started making fun of them. Pray louder. He is a god. Maybe he's daydreaming or relieving himself. Not every version adds that. Or, or perhaps he's gone off on a trip. Or maybe he's sleeping, and you've got to wake him up. So the prophets prayed louder and cut themselves with knives and daggers according to their ritual, until blood flowed. Now what does that mean, according to their ritual? Why were they cutting themselves? And what have we said is the mark of uh, idolatry all the way through the Old Testament. It's, uh, the gods are always angry. They always need to be appeased. The more blood, the better. Okay, so this is, uh, they're trying to appease their uh, Baal, who I think we've described before, was a, was a very angry and uh, vengeful god. And they kept on ranting and raving until the middle of the afternoon, but no answer came, not a sound was heard. And I understand that in the Hebrew, it's much more emphatic, the silence that uh, they received from Baal. And then Elijah said to the people, come closer to me. And they all gathered around him. He set about repairing the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. He took 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes, named for the sons of Jacob, the man whom the Lord had given the name Israel. With these stones, he rebuilt the altar for the worship of the Lord. He dug a trench around it, large enough to hold four gallons of water. Then he placed the wood on the altar, cut the bowl in pieces, laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood. They did so. And he said, do it again. And they did it. 
Do it once more, he said, and they did it. And the water ran down around the altar and filled the trench. When I read this to my son recently, he said maybe he put gasoline on there, and that's how he got the fire. So that was kind of an interesting idea. <clears throat> so at the hour of the afternoon sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and prayed, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove now that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and have done all this at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you are bringing them back to yourself. So the Lord sent fire down and it burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones, scorched the earth, dried up the water in the trench. And then... And when the people saw this, they threw themselves on the ground and exclaimed, The Lord is God. The Lord alone is God. Elijah ordered, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any of them get away. The people seized them all, and Elijah led them down to Kishon Brook and killed them. A lot of blood that day. And then Elijah said to King Ahab, Now, go and eat. And I hear the roar of rain approaching. So, Here's my question here. Why isn't this method used more often? Uh, why couldn't we do this to settle all kinds of things? Why couldn't God do this to settle all kinds of things today? You know, atheism could be a thing of the past in about an hour if God were to show up here in Loma Linda as a big ball of fire. Um, ask him all of our questions, you know? Want to know the age of the earth? I'll settle it right now. Um, evolution, creation, day of worship, Everything. If we could just have definitive answers. Okay, and everyone, I mean, who would argue if God came and, and manifested power like this? Fire came down from heaven. So, question is, uh, well, this happened back then. Um, why isn't that a method that is used today? Well, I think we'll be able to answer that question here when we, we get through this uh, Bible study. King Ahab told his wife Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, and now he had put all the prophets of Baal to death, she sent a message to Elijah. May the God strike me dead if by this time tomorrow I don't do the same thing to you that you did to the prophets. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. Why was he afraid? He took his servant and went to Beersheba in Judah. Leaving the servant there, Elijah walked the whole day into the wilderness. He stopped and sat down in the shade of a tree and wished he would die. It's too much, Lord, he prayed. Take away my life. I may, might as well be dead. He lay down under the tree and fell asleep. And I'd make, like to make just a small point here that I don't think Elijah was afraid. Uh, there are a couple different ways of, of translating this. And um, I, I like the Good News Bible. I think it's a clear, uh, understandable version that no, no version is accurate. But here we turn to the, the King James, which perhaps uh, gets it right. And when he saw that, saw what? When he saw that, he arose and went for his life. And uh, here I'm going to make a remarkable link here that the Message Bible agrees with the King James, perhaps the most uh, accurate way of translating this. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba. Well, um, I think the, the meaning here is when Elijah saw, I mean, you would think, wouldn't you, that if fire came down, everyone's on their knees, there'd be a great revival. Right? The people would turn to God, they'd turn away from Baal. Uh, it didn't happen. Okay, you read on, everyone is still worshiping Baal. There was no revival. Uh, didn't win anyone, okay, which uh, seems surprising. And here Jezebel it seems unmoved by this. 
I think Elijah was deeply depressed, discouraged. It didn't work. And so he'd rather just die. He's the last prophet. In his mind, he's maybe the last person that's loyal to God. If that doesn't work, um, what left is there? So he went out, I think, in, in deep discouragement and depression, more so than fear of uh, Jezebel. Well, this is what happened. You know, he's out in the desert, and suddenly an angel touched him and said, wake up and eat. He looked around and saw a loaf of bread and a jar of water near his head. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the Lord's angel returned and woke him up a second time, saying, get up and eat, or the trip will be too much for you. Elijah got up, ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to walk 40 days to Sinai. Now, I mean, is there some important uh, symbolism here? We have a 40-day journey, not just to any old mountain, but Mount Sinai, the holy mountain. Hey, what does he have to go out there for? There he went into a cave to spend the night, and suddenly the Lord spoke to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? He answered, Lord God Almighty, I've always served you, you alone, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. Hey, wouldn't this suggest he's, he's depressed, he's discouraged, has no hope that anything is going to work? And God said, go out and stand before me on top of the mountain. And then the Lord passed by and sent a furious wind that split the hills and shattered the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. The wind stopped blowing and then there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the soft whisper of a voice. And when Elijah heard that, when he heard it, he covered his face with his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. A voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he answered, Lord God Almighty, I've always served you, you alone, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed your prophets. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me. And the Lord said, and kind of, we wish God would be more revealing here. What, what's the meaning of all this? But all God said was, return to the wilderness near Damascus, then enter the city and anoint Haziel as king of Syria, anoint Jehu as king of Israel, and anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. And then God said, you know, you're actually not quite uh, correct, Elijah. I still have 7,000 people alive in Israel, all those who are loyal to me and have not bowed to Baal or kissed his idol. Okay, so our question is, I mean, God brought Elijah out here for a purpose, and there's some meaning, some deep meaning to all of this. Uh, what was God trying to reveal? <clears throat> and um, I'd first like to try to make a case here that Elijah is really retracing the steps of Moses. <clears throat> there are so many parallels between Moses and Elijah, and perhaps that might help us just a little bit. Okay, so we know that uh, we just read the story here, that he made this 40-day journey to Mount Sinai, okay? And, of course, the uh, children of Israel wandered for 40 years after leaving Mount Sinai, okay? So there's, there's a relationship there. And Mount Sinai, um, of course, uh, Moses was very familiar with that uh, mountain. That was the mountain where he met God on the burning bush and, of course, where God gave the Ten Commandments. And uh, just out of interest here that... Um, when Moses was taking care of Jethro's sheep and he met God on Horeb, the mountain of God, um, that 
as I understand, is synonymous with Mount Sinai. We read this in other translations. He led the flock, and they came to Sinai, the holy mountain. Okay, so this was Mount Sinai. Both Moses and Elijah enter a cave. Now, not to make too much out of this, but uh, Elijah, we just read, was in a cave. Moses also was put in a cave by God. And uh, you remember, perhaps last year, we read this story where Moses <coughs> makes his <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> incredible request here to please let me see the dazzling light or the glory of your presence. And the Lord answered, I will make all my splendor pass before you, and in your presence I will pronounce my sacred name. I am the Lord, and I show compassion and pity on those I choose. I will not let you see my face, because no one can see me and stay alive. But here is a place beside me where you can stand on a rock. And when the dazzling light of my presence passes by, I will put you in an opening or a cave in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but not my face. So they both experience the immediate presence of God. They're both in a cave. <coughs> and in terms of experiencing God's presence, <coughs> that's very clear on Mount Sinai you know, where the mountain was covered with smoke because the Lord had come down, it, down on it in fire. And the whole description here is just the incredible presence of God coming down on Mount Sinai. And when the people heard the thunder, it was dramatic, fire, thunder, trumpet blast, saw the lightning, the smoking mountain, they trembled with fear. Okay, so there was a, a very dramatic manifestation of God's presence, both in the case of Moses and Elijah. And so, uh, as, as many have, have drawn this uh, parallel, uh, here a quote from Richard Cohen's book, that Yahweh answers Elijah's complaint by displaying the theophanic triad, which means God's revelation or presence to uh, humanity or humans, of wind, earthquake, and fire, as he did before Moses and the people of Israel, indicating his power and sovereignty. Okay, but there's more to it than that. Uh, Elijah and Moses both have, I think, a surprising revelation. Again, getting back to this C.S. Lewis con concept of God shattering, perhaps, our previous concept and bringing us to a new paradigm. I think both Moses and Elijah experienced a new paradigm in this. When Moses asked to see God's glory, okay, dazzling light and the good news, glory in most translations, okay, we read on, we expect to see brightness, Okay, but the description is something quite different. When the Lord actually came in the cloud, he stood there and he pronounced his holy name, the Lord. And the Lord then passed in front of him and called out, I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion and pity, who is not easily angered, who shows great love and faithfulness. I keep my promise for thousands of generations and forgive evil and sin. So the point here is, I mean, Moses asked, can I please see your glory, the dazzling light of your presence? And what was revealed to him was a description, really, of God's goodness, God's character. And we can make a very good case that the ultimate glory of God is God's character. That was the revelation uh, to Moses. Okay, so what was the revelation, the surprising revelation to um, Elijah? <clears throat> it's interesting, the negative, three times, God was not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire. 
And what does it mean, the soft whisper of a voice? Um, boy, there are many variations in terms of how to translate this. In the King James, it's a still small voice. The sound of a light whisper, or perhaps a gentle whisper, a gentle light breeze, a quiet whispering voice. And the NRSV surprisingly just says uh, sheer silence. Okay, what does that mean? There seems to be a dramatic contrast, doesn't there, between fire, wind, earthquake, God who is not in those things, and then how God does manifest himself is in a soft, gentle voice. <clears throat> well, here I'm quoting from um, an article on this that uh, Dr. Sigvi Tonstad, who's in the religion department here at Loma Linda, uh, wrote. It, it's really excellent and uh, something that, that uh, resonates as true for me. Dr. Tonstead wrote, to the extent that Elijah has counted on God's power to prevail in the conflict with Baal, didn't he rely on power? Having articulated this view on Mount Carmel and watched the execution of this premise in a spectacular fashion, he looks for this expectation to be vindicated and to be the remedy for his sense of failure. However, what happens at Horeb does not take the form of an affirmation of Elijah's prior paradigm. Instead, the theophany shatters the old framework, or at least revises it, right down to its original mosaic foundation. The message this time is that the reasons for the prophet's confidence in God must lie elsewhere, demanding of him a new perception and outlook. It is, as it were, as if Yahweh is repudiating precisely the features on which Elijah's prior confidence was built before his very eyes. In other words, the old paradigm here for Elijah is, you know, power, might, overwhelming force and show of display. That's how you work uh, a conversion. And what God is saying, I think, here on the mountain is, uh, that is not the ideal. Yes, God has used those means, but that is not the ideal. And in fact, it doesn't work. We could show lots and lots of examples, and we will through the rest of the Old Testament. Elisha did more miracles than anyone. Didn't seem to work. Jesus, look at all the miracles he did. He raised Lazarus, three days dead in the tomb. Remember, he really was dead because he, uh, he stinks when they rolled away the rock. And the Pharisees left the tomb to plot his death. So power, miracles, it, it seems rather uh, unsuccessful. Okay, and so our, our key text here, Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. God has another way, a more effective way of reaching us. Okay, let's try to spell this out a little more. And I just want to say also, Elijah you know, said, I'm the only one left. And when God said, I still have 7,000 people in Israel whose knees have not knelt to worship Baal, are these people that were converted by the fire that came down? No, they've not bowed to worship Baal. These were people who were loyal to God based on some other revelation. Okay, then, then the manifestation of power and force and miracles. Okay, but we can draw out this uh, Moses-Elijah connection even further, and I think we need to. Of course, they were both resurrected. We won't read the text here, but in Jude, Moses was resurrected. Elijah never died. He was uh, caught up in fiery chariots. Okay, so we only have these three people, if we add Enoch, that we know were uh, uh, brought up to heaven. Okay, and Moses and Elijah brought to heaven, and of course, they have another meeting together. Well, assuming they've been enjoying each other in heaven here for some time, but they meet again in a very similar situation, the Mount of Transfiguration. 
and again, the parallels between Moses in the cave, on the mount, talking with God, Elijah on the mountain in a cave, talking with God, and now another mountain, as Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. It's kind of like, again, this, this manifestation of God's uh, presence here in all of his glory. And suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see. And they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Not many versions translate it this way, but it really does say he was speaking about his exodus. Um, again, perhaps bringing us back to exodus here in the Old Testament. Uh, that's how Dr. Tonstead has, has put this together, that the entire passage, the transfiguration passage in Luke, is embedded in a journey on the part of Jesus that appears to resemble and recapitulate the exodus. Specifically and central to this imagery, there is the transfiguration on the mountain, a speaking face-to-face -face with a divine or divinized figure, and the human partners in this conversation are the same two characters who've been there before, Moses and Elijah. Luke's account implies that in Moses and Elijah, Jesus meets with a twosome whose prior encounters had prepared them for the subject of the conversation. So what did they talk about? Uh, we're not told what they talked about, but I think if we, if we bring in the other two uh, encounters, I think it perhaps gets to the greatest temptation for Jesus, which was to use his power, to use miracles, to win people that way. What was the first temptation in the desert? Yeah, for a long time, this seemed like a rather weak uh, temptation of Satan. Um, you know, what, what's the meaning here? He was tempted by the devil, and um, the temptation here, if you are God's son, order this stone to turn into bread. What's wrong with that? I think it was just a subtle attempt to get Jesus going in the wrong direction, using power for selfish means. Jesus never did that, never used his power for himself. Okay, it was always for, for others. And Satan was trying to get him in that, in that paradigm. Come on, use your power, use your miracles to uh, intimidate, coerce people. Okay, and it's so repetitive, this temptation of Jesus. You know, the Jewish authorities came and said, what miracle can you perform to show us that you have the right to do this? Okay, he was hounded with this temptation. Never used a miracle in that way to prove to people that, yes, I am uh, the Messiah. And when his disciples were offended, remember that uh, people didn't welcome Jesus in a town, and they said, Lord, do you wish us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? And this, we didn't read this part of the story, but when the guards came up to get Elijah, he called fire down and consumed them. And Jesus turned and rebuked and severely censured them. He said, you do not know what sort of spirit you are. Um, Jesus very much did not use those methods in his ministry. And of course, we take it right up to the cross, where again, he's hounded with this temptation. Herod was very pleased. He'd heard about him, had been wanting to see him for a long time. He was hoping to see Jesus perform some miracle. And if Jesus had done a, the simplest miracle, um, he could have uh, all, had all those people on their knees. He didn't do it. Hanging on the cross, same temptation. People passed by, shook their heads, hurled insults at Jesus. You are going to tear down the temple, build it back up in three days. Save yourself if you are God's son. 
come on down from the cross. Couldn't he have done it? In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders made fun of him. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Isn't he the king of Israel? If he will come down off the cross now, we will believe in him. He trusts in God and claims to be God's son. Well, then let us see if God wants to save him now. Don't you think it crossed Jesus' mind that if he would just you know, become bright, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, just wipe out a few people, that uh, wouldn't that be impressive? Could have won them all in that one moment. He didn't do it. Okay, so this was, I, I'd like to just suggest that perhaps the conversation that Moses and Elijah had with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration ties in with the same issues um, here that Elijah was dealing with um, on Mount Sinai. So again, why doesn't God come as a pillar of light and uh, fix all of these questions that we have? Because I think the, the real issues are not about God's existence, God's power, all of these other things that we debate. The real issues, uh, I think, are what is God like? Is God trustworthy? Is God loving? Um, is he good? And you can't intimidate or coerce people into uh, a real... Uh, being settled into belief about these things. You just can't coerce those kinds of things. It doesn't work. And if we read on to Revelation, someone else calls fire down in the book of Revelation. The second beast, and we won't get into all this, but performed great miracles, made fire come down out of heaven to earth in the sight of everyone. And now it does work. It deceived all the people living on the earth by means of the miracles which it was allowed to perform in the presence of the first beast. So if we're susceptible to power and miracles, if that's our only criteria for who we're going to believe, well, here we've got a pow powerful story that would suggest if that's really all we're looking for, um, that, that's quite dangerous. Well, I'd like to finish with one brief story from the life of Jesus that I think, uh, for me, not by might, not by power, but by spirit, is the best example in the Bible of what that means, how God really wins us to his side. This is after Jesus' death. No one knows he's resurrected here, at least these men on the Emmaus Road aren't aware of his resurrection, and they're depressed. So on that same day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking to each other about all the things that had happened. As they talked and discussed, Jesus himself drew near and walked along with them. Now, he could have right away revealed who he was, okay? but he didn't. They saw him, but somehow did not recognize him. Jesus said to them, what are you talking about to each other? You know, as, as if he doesn't know. And they stood still with sad faces. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have been happening there these last few days? What things, he asked. Well, the things that happened to Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. The man was a prophet and was considered by God and all the people to be powerful in everything he said and did. Our chief priests and rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and he was crucified, and we had hoped that he would be the one who was going to set Israel free. Besides all that, this is now the third day since it happened. And then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, how slow to believe everything the prophets said. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And Jesus now explained to them what was written about himself in the scriptures. Okay, wouldn't you love to have that Bible study written down? Okay, but we don't. Beginning with the books of Moses and the writings of all the prophets. 
And as they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus acted, he's doing a lot of acting here, he acted as if he were going farther, but they held him back, saying, stay with us. The day is almost over and it's getting dark. So we went in to stay with them. And he sat down to eat with them, took the bread and said the blessing. And then he broke the bread and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. Now here's the, the key point. And then they said to each other, wasn't it like a fire burning in us when he talked to us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? In other words, when were they convicted? When were they really settled into the truth? It wasn't based on Jesus overwhelming them with his presence. Okay, he veiled himself, he hid his presence. And it wasn't until they had that fire burning based on evidence, revelation that was not coerced, okay, that, that's when things sunk in. And once they were settled into that truth about Jesus, um, you know, once they had that fire going, and then Jesus was safe to reveal himself. He didn't intimidate or coerce. So I think, um, I think the point is uh, we need to be uh, settled into what we believe uh, based on uh, really solid evidence and not to be swayed by overwhelming force and power. This, this seems to be God's way, I think, of um, working with each one of us. You know, the conscience is a very tender, sensitive part of the, the mind. It can be violated quite easily. And I'm, I'm quite impressed that, that God never uh, seems to, uh, to use those means. Let's pray. Father, once again, uh, so much to admire in a God who uh, certainly you possess limitless power that we can't even imagine um, that power. But uh, the fact that you don't use that to force us to believe, to coerce us, that you value, seem to value freedom almost above everything else. And pray that we would be willing to listen to the soft, quiet voice and that we'd be settled into the truth about who you are based on that. Amen.